You'll be glad to hear that story time continues. I want to tell you two stories, two stories of creation. The first story is called Enuma Elish, and that it's titled Enuma Elish because those are the first two words of the story. This is the Babylonian story of creation. This story has over 900 lines, and it was originally written in a language that's a distant cousin of Hebrew. Biblical scholar Pete Enns says that this story, Enuma Elish, is a story of a highly dysfunctional divine family that's engaged in a major power struggle at the dawn of time. So in 900 lines, this tale marks six generations of the divine family, ending with Marduk, who fillets his great-great-great-grandmother, Tiamat, He slices her in two in order to create the sky and the earth. Then Marduk claims the throne as the high god. He seizes the power, and for his final act, he makes humankind into slaves so that all the gods can rest. This story is a conversation partner or a debate partner with Genesis chapter 1. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that Genesis chapter 1 is a poem, a poem that was written for the Israelite exiles who were captives in Babylon in the 6th century BC. So Genesis 1 was originally written in Hebrew. It has only 34 lines or 34 verses. It's a story about how the world of chaos becomes new because of Elohim's inviting, grace-filled words. Remember last week we said that God says throughout this poem, let there be, let there be, instead of there will be, there will be. And as there are six generations of creation in Enuma Elish, there are six days of creation in Genesis. And for the final act, there's Sabbath. God rests on the seventh day, and God blesses the Sabbath. And the thing about the Sabbath is that when God blesses something in Scripture, there is power and there is potential there. So Sabbath then becomes a gift, a gift for humankind, a gift for all of creation. It is a place of power and potential for all of creation. All right, an assignment for you now that you've heard two stories. This won't seem like a tough assignment. I want you to choose your favorite. Choose your favorite creation story. Which creation narrative do you like the most? Do you prefer to align your life with the long, oppressive, violent story of creation where we end up as slaves? Or do you like the ongoing story that calls us to be curious and to participate in what God is making new. An easy choice, right? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's a tougher decision than it might seem because these two stories, these two stories have been great conversation partners. They sometimes hang out together in our world. The attraction, the attraction of the Babylonian narrative is that power is out there for the taking. Power is out there for us to grab. 
You might have to step on a few people. You might have to step on their actual physical body or maybe on their good names. Fillet those who get in your way. But on the other side of that, there is power and prestige for you. Jewish sages taught that when a brick fell during the building of the Tower of Babel, there were tears. People cried when a brick fell. But when a worker fell from the Tower of Babel, they paid no attention. This, I think, is an important distinction between the two creation stories. The value, the honor, the dignity that gets placed on individual lives. On our lives and on the lives of other people. So there's a key verse in Genesis chapter 1 that I want us to look at. It's verse 27. It's worth our consideration. Some biblical scholars say that it's especially important because there's a clustering of one particular word. There's a reoccurring word in verse 27. And a reoccurring word in the Hebrew scripture is kind of like taking a highlighter. Because it wants to draw attention. When you see a word over and over again, it wants to draw attention to something. So here's verse 27. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 is indeed an account of creation. So the word create in Hebrew shows up several times. It shows up frequently. But in one verse, in verse 27, we get it three times. So the thing that is getting highlighted for us is the creation of humankind in two styles, as Ryan told earlier, in male and female. Both of those styles reflecting the image of God. Not too long ago, my kids and I were um, talking about the purpose of life over pizza, as you do, right? And so I said, I made my contribution by saying, well, the purpose of life is to love God and to love others. And their response to my answer, as only pastor's children can do, was, that's a little too churchy, Mom. Not everybody wants to be a pastor. (laughs) And I totally get that. But here in Genesis 1 is a better answer, a better answer than the one I gave over pizza. A better answer for the purpose of life is that we all reflect the image of the creator. And there are endless, there's an endless number of ways to do that. It's not just praying and preaching or working at a church or loving people from a church. But we are all created to reflect God's image wherever we are and however we are. I was listening this week to a podcast um, Pete Scazzaro, who wrote a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church, has a podcast. And in the podcast this week, he was talking about spiritual gifts. And he said something about the spiritual gifts in the New Testament that hadn't occurred to me before, and I wish I had heard it years ago. He said that the listing of spiritual gifts in the New Testament that Paul gives us is just a sampling He said, it's just a sampling. It's not a finite list. So Paul tells us that there are spiritual gifts like teaching and healing and prophecy and leadership and help and evangelism, but it's just a sampling. You don't have to find a category and fit yourself into that spiritual gift because 
just among the spiritual gift sampling that Paul gives us, you can show up in those gifts in different ways. If it's teaching, maybe you're gifted to teach a thousand people, or maybe you're gifted to teach 10, or maybe you're just gifted to teach one-on-one. So you can show up in a myriad of ways in those different gifts that Paul gives us. But then Scazzaro goes on to say it's not a finite list. There are continually new spiritual gifts. There are actors and authors and designers of spaces. I always thought you just had to find your category and fit in, but I love the idea of gift combinations and new gifts being added because creation is ongoing in the world, in us, and in the world around us. We are to reflect God's image in our, in our lives in our own way. We are all mirrors reflecting the image of the divine. And the key, I believe, is to focus on the right image of God. So do we focus on Elohim or do we focus on Marduk? Take, for instance, how we read verse 28. Verse 28 in chapter 1 of Genesis says this, God blessed them and God said to them, this is humankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every little thing that moves on the earth. So we are to have dominion. And the way that we have dominion is how we see God. We reflect in in the way that we have dominion. We reflect the image of God that we understand. So that image of God could be exploiting others. Or it could be caring for and nurturing creation. We treat creation as we understand God to treat us, how God treats us. So it could be cultivating and developing and shepherding. That's one way of having dominion over the earth. Or it could be exploiting and taking advantage and enslaving. That's another way to have dominion over the earth. Roberta Bondi was my church theology professor in seminary. And she taught that there was one characteristic of the Christian God that was the most difficult for the early church to grasp, the most difficult for the people outside of the church to get as well. And she said that characteristic of God that was the hardest to grasp was the humility of God. The early non-Christians would ask, how can you worship a God that would share in this dirty life, that would share in our messy birth, in our human limitation, in our shameful death? That makes no sense in a God. And even today, I would say that God's greatness we are drawn to. It's easy for us to talk about God's power and greatness. We get that. We want that. We desire it. But the humility of God is more difficult. The humility of God is almost incomprehensible. And for that reason, I think it's worthy of our attention and our focus. It's such an important piece of who God really is. We worship a God whose story says self-sacrifice is important. From the very beginning of creation to the crucifixion, self-sacrifice is significant. Roberta Bondi would define humility for you and for me as having the correct view of ourselves and of other people. 
so that we have this understanding that all people are valued, all people are worthy. There's no sense of entitlement. There's no sense of shame in humility. It is said that there was a Hasidic rabbi who practiced the value of life by keeping two pieces of paper with him at all times, one in each pocket of his pants. In one pocket, the paper read, for my sake, the world was created. And in the other pocket, the paper read, I am but dust and ashes. And somewhere in between those two, I am but dust and ashes. And for my sake, the world was created is the truth. Somewhere in between those two is that characteristic of humility that I am valued, but that all are valued. Last Sunday, I went to see a movie. I don't do that very often. And I went to see the new documentary on Pope Francis. And when the Pope teaches on humility in the film, he says, the more power you have in this world, the more humility is required. Like Jesus in Luke's gospel says, to whom much is given, much is required. And it's my take that humility is a characteristic or a discipline that the Pope wants the world to watch him practice. Remember when he came to Washington, D.C., and there was that long line of luxury SUVs and then the tiny little black Fiat that he rode around D.C. in? There's this scene in the movie where the Pope goes to a prison. He goes to a prison to bless the men and the women who are there and to teach. And when he stands in front of the group to teach, he asks them the question, Do you know who the very first saint of the church was? So if the Pope asks you that question, do you know what the answer is? If the Pope asks you who was the very first saint, aren't you going to say St. Peter? I mean, that would be my response to the Pope. But the Pope's answer to his own question is that he says it was the criminal who hung on the cross next to Jesus. Who the Christ said, today you will be with me in paradise. The first saint of the church. For the Pope to say that, that to me is humility. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs teaches that when instruction is given in the book of Numbers to count the Israelites, that the word that is selected is kind of a complex, awkward word in Hebrew. There are, so Hebrew is a poor language, but there are several words in Hebrew that literally mean count, just number the people. But the word that is selected in the book of Numbers when the instruction is given to count the Israelite people is translated into English as lift the head. Lift their head. Because people are more than a number. People are worthy of more than just to be counted. Lift their head. Let them know that they are important. Let them know that they are significant. In my family, we sometimes tell stories about humility. There was this time when my father was the personal attorney for the parents of the baby that got stuck in the well in West Texas in 1987. Y'all remember that? Her name was Jessica McClure. 
And Oprah came to my town because her show was going to air from the Civic Center. And after the show, she went to the hospital to see the now-famous toddler. And a mother of a child with cancer stood in the hallway of the hospital because she wanted to see the talk show host. No one was watching Oprah. No one but my father, a small-town lawyer. But he saw that Oprah stopped, and she spent as much time with the mom who was in pain as she did with the famous toddler. We tell a story in my family about a senior pastor of a large church. He used to sneak away in between services, and he would sit on the floor of the nursery to play with the crawling babies in his robe instead of shaking the hands of the important people. And in my house, we tell a story just this year about a big thinker, a popular theologian, who sat on my couch in January and was happy to eat Domino's pizza from a cardboard box and watch college basketball with my kids. That's humility. I believe that there's nothing, no characteristic, no discipline that is a clearer reflection of our faith and of our God than humility. And so I want to encourage you this morning to look for that characteristic in the world that surrounds us. It's there. It's few and far between. But, but look for that discipline. Tell those stories. And when we tell a story, it then becomes our own. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, we want your story to be a story speaking gracious words of invitation to all so that what looks like chaos will become a place of beauty and provision. We seek that in our world and we seek that in our lives. Would you surprise us with your good work? We seek joy. Use our anxious places to bring your order, your joy. We want to reflect your image and your will. Remind us that we are loved as we are, and at the same time, we are better together. Amen.